Well, hello everybody again and welcome to another episode of Trial by Fire. Our guest today needs no introduction, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, Tristan Gooley, he is an author and a natural navigator and he's spent decades hunting for clues and signs in nature across the globe. And he has been nicknamed the Sherlock Holmes of nature. Uh, he's written books so many books, a lot of which I've already I already own and I love, including The Natural Navigator, The Walker's Guide to Outdoor Clues and Signs, How to Read Water, and The Secret World of Weather. Tristan, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us. This has been an interview that I've been really looking forward to for a long time. Um, how's everything in your part of the world today? Yeah, really good, thanks. Uh, I'm enjoying this time of year. I, I always do. September, you get the stars coming back into view, but it's still warm, uh, a nice mix of weather. I mean, we had, like a lot of Europe, uh, I don't know about you guys, but we had sort of heat waves and extended um, high pressure, um, which, which from a weather observation point of view is interesting. But uh, I, I love this time of year because it starts to get more mixed as the, as the low pressures start coming in, makes things like walking and sailing a bit more interesting. Was there a big difference in uh, the weather as a as a navigation tool during the heat wave, or it doesn't it, it doesn't matter? Yeah, it's it's on one level it's it's easy to use once you have a a high pressure a dominant high pressure sitting somewhere. For a start, it means you're going to get a lot of sun and a lot of stars. So natural navigation in that sense becomes pretty pretty straightforward. And then in terms of using the wind. Uh, you get you get very steady but light patterns. So the wind becomes quite light and variable. Mm -hmm. So the second you go into trees, you tend to lose it in a high pressure system. Uh, but it, it 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 remains fairly constant. And in terms of weather watching, it's very interesting because if somebody's new to watching using signs in nature to pred predict weather changes, then a, then a, a high pressure system is the best best possible chance because you to to kind of get into it because it's you get maybe three or four days where there's hardly a cloud in the sky. Then you get some cirrus. Then you start to notice um, the wind direction changing. And basically all the pieces start to fit together a little bit like you would, you know, if, if you're teaching somebody and you teach them these are the five things that are going to happen. If you have a high pressure system slowly mm -hmm. getting pushed out of the way, you you more often than not, you get that kind of textbook effect. And it, it, it's, whereas reading stuff in, you know, when you're when you're in the middle of a low pressure system or something like that, it's 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 doable, but it's it's much more complex and uh, and demanding. It's so fascinating. I mean, the thing the thing that I I find just you're talking there, like there's there's a there's a language there. There's like sort of a an understanding, and it must be so rewarding to have those tools at your disposal, just on a daily basis, being able to read, essentially read. I, I guess is the word for it. And and I think language and reading and stuff. I think they're they're kind of kind of transposable words to use in this sort of sense in the, in the sense of having a literacy or sort of an understanding of nature and one of the things that kind of springs to mind with that is i'm sure you've read uh, robert mcfarland's book uh, landmarks and it's a book that i kind of mention quite quite often on this podcast um is that if you have the words for things uh, all of a sudden you start to see those things and i think it's something that you also mentioned in that language can literally affect and like can can affect how we perceive the world around us and that, that sort of literacy and i think that's so fascinating and it's like it must be so rewarding to have those those tools at your disposal yeah it's my my ears prick up as soon as you use the word language uh in relation mm. to in in relation to observation because 
um, I've, I've just been editing a book I'm working on and the editor persuaded me to cut uh, a chunk, which I'll share with you now because I think it's relevant to our conversation. But the, the, the point I was making is that I, I had this very, very odd experience when I was 12 years old where a maths teacher at school who was eccentric but good eccentric. Uh, there are lots of <laughs> eccentric teachers who are the other side of that line. Right, right, but, right. <laughs> but, but, but this was a really, a really good teacher. And he persuaded me and one other one other boy called called Thomas that we could learn this language called Esperanto. Uh, and I don't know if you've come across Esperanto. I believe the inventor was Finnish. Um, uh, okay. uh, anyway, I, I, I'll fast forward through it. But mm-hmm. for, for anyone who hasn't come across it, the idea was that we'd all get along better if we shared, if everyone in the world shared a second language. And um, this this is going back a few decades when when English you know, was less, less well-spoken as a second language. So the, the, you know, the drive to find the second language. And the idea was it's, it's, it gets rid of all irregularities. It's very easy to learn and you can get fluent quite quickly. And so we did this club, just Thomas, myself and this teacher. And because there weren't very many people, certainly not many 12-year-olds uh, who, were, who were doing this with their spare time, we got sponsored to travel out to the 86th Universal Congress of Esperanto in Beijing. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> I know. Um, the reason for mentioning all of that, which doesn't seem very on topic at all, is that what I, what I was writing is that, to me now, the global language doesn't involve words at all. It is nature's signs. And, mm. and then... It, it's such a rewarding thing when you sit down with somebody. It could be a Bedouin elder in the in the in the desert. It can be it can be any culture in the world. You can be uh, in, in a rainforest with the Dayak. You know, it really doesn't matter if you if you're struggling with words, but you point to something like a, a star or a pattern a pattern in a tree or a pattern in the sand suddenly there's this connection. If that other person is connected to the outdoors and hasn't lost the traditional skills, you're suddenly communi- you're communicating without words. So that rather long, <laughs> rather long ramble about Esperanto is, is that, that's, that's, I see nature signs as, put, it, put another way, a weird thought experiment. If you were told that you were going to have to convey some meaning to a stranger in under a minute and you were going to be given absolutely no information about them at all you'd be crazy you'd be crazy to pick a language even like you know the the well spoken ones mm-hmm. like spanish english or 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 one of the the chinese languages you'd be far better off you know pointing to pointing to to something in nature and just giving that a go is is my take that's very, yeah. That's very interesting. Very very interesting. It makes me like wait. I I, li- I listened to one of your, or maybe the one uh, the TED talk that you did, and something struck me that you said quite early on in it that it is an underrated art. Uh, that learning how to see the science and read nature is an underrated art, and that's such a beautiful way, I guess of saying that something that has been so normal for us for thousands of years is an art it 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 puts it in a different light compared to it is something that we have to do it it it's sort of makes it accessible for for people if that makes sense rather than it being this is something you have to know it's an art form yes it, it it's something that's 
very high on my list of sort of things I get passionate about in a professional and personal sense at the moment, because what I feel is that um, we've come a long way in terms of our relationship with food. We've gone from, you know, maybe 10,000 years ago, the only discussion of food probably was, was all centered around necessity and practicality. And then in, in the last hundred years, there's been such rapid change in industrial and post-industrial societies. I mean, the discussion is still the same in, in, in some of the um, poorer parts of the world, of course. But, but in terms of post-industrial society, we've gone on this quite fast um, change where we now understand that there are cultural heritage um, and even philosophical aspects to food. And, and those things are certainly true about navigation. So you, you can microwave a meal in, in two minutes um, and, and you can put on your, you, you can stare at your, your smartphone and, and find your way to, to a meeting in a town or even across a, a woodland. But then it's, it's not a right-wrong thing. It's, it's sometimes we want to source the food. We, under, we want to understand exactly where it's come from, perhaps even pick it ourselves or grow it ourselves and then cook it ourselves. And that is, that is a cultural, you know, some would argue... Uh, that there's a thin line between practicality and philosophy at that area where you're actually you're engaging with the, the landscape. Natural navigation is just the opposite of microwaving food. It's 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 un understanding understanding that the way a leaf that is fluttering in front of you is telling you that the wind direction has changed, which is telling you that the, the, you need to change you know the direction you're walking. That's that's spending you know time understanding things. Yeah. For sure. Can I can I just back up a little bit for us? Because I think all three of us are obviously extremely passionate about this subject. Tristan, you've spent, it's basically your life's work. This is something that I wasn't even aware existed until I bought your book back in maybe 2016 or so. And I kind of like to go in and talk to you a little bit about that later. But could we back it up a little bit? And just for maybe people that are just kind of tuning in and not really aware of what it is that we're talking about, on a very fundamental level, what what is what is it that we're talking about here? What is it exactly? At, at the core of what I do is um, natural navigation, which I my my understanding of that art is it's it's finding our way without the use of any tools at all. So not even quite um, elementary tools like um, a compass or a paper map or anything like that, and not even things like sextants. A lot of people hear natural navigation, they kind of imagine somebody on the on the deck of a ship with a sextant. But but I'm talking about nothing in your hands at all. And, and, and what's happened over the kind of arc of my career is that it started for me personally and through my writing and teaching as a, as a very pragmatic thing. Uh, and survivalists still see it this way, which is kind of like, well, if you can find the North Star and you know that the sun is due south in the middle of the day and we had another half dozen fundamental techniques, you stand a chance of getting yourself out of jail if things are going wrong. But that that to me, that, that is still at the kind of fast, um, shallow, but practical end of the subject. And what I've discovered personally and now share through my work is that it... it it, it, I keep coming back to the food analogy because I think people can relate to it very quickly that that there's there's a difference between you know eating eating a burger that you've you've hardly spent any money on you've no idea where it comes from and actually knowing the name of an animal and all that sort of stuff and it's the same with natural navigation in the sense that even once you even once you've found direction let's say you find you know 
south because the the tree is growing bigger on the south side and the the roots are growing out to the southwest let's say you've used those two techniques to find direction the the fast pragmatic approach is okay that's that box ticked off we go but but my interpretation is we actually have only just begun because natural navigation to me is it's a shorthand for understanding all of the signs in nature and therefore when when the sound of the bird the birds change that's that's telling us we're getting near the forest. That's a practical thing. But then when we get deeper in, we, we get to know that the, the sounds have changed again. So even before we've reached the edge of the forest, they've told us we're getting near the edge of the forest, but there might be a weather change. So all of this is, is it's, not a, it's not a 2D map. It's not even a 3D map. It, it's, it's such a rich world once you start reading nature signs that, 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 that it's a... It's an infinitely rich uh, uh, and an exciting thing to di- discover, even over tiny journeys. It, it is extremely exciting to discover and learn more about this. Uh, but with the, with the food analogy there, that is something that really hits home because it's sort of a, I guess it's a sign of times as well. I mean, microwaves been around for a long time and, and TV dinners have been around for just as long it's not that that's not necessarily new but now we're being served everything even more so it's it takes maybe more for a person to do something that is a little bit uncomfortable or maybe take the long way around uh, but is, is this something that you've seen because you of course run a school and things like that as well is this something that you've seen with students or people that you meet and talk to that the interest of learning something that is not necess- that that doesn't necessarily have an instant gratification has become more or bigger yes and i'm i'm constantly trying to make it more accessible because one one of the challenges all of us face in terms of uh traditional skills is people we're all busy and and people understandably try to compartmentalize things and they kind of go like Oh, okay. Um, let's take reading water as a skill. You know the the signs in water that have been used by Pacific Islanders, Vikings, Arab cultures all over the world. It's very easy to sort of go, oh, that's kind of used that in the Pacific. But actually, we can we can use that looking at the the water around a fountain in the center of a city. Um, what once mm-hmm. we're tuned to to recognize patterns in water, we we see the gust of wind in the water, or we 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 notice. Uh, perhaps reflections are telling us that the sky is changing or that I, I could go on there are hundreds of different things but um, the, the 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 point is I don't I, I try and I try and say to people that this is something that ideally you should do once every single day for one minute rather than thinking I'm going to find that half day or day off work where I'm going to get really really deep into this and natural navigation is going to be that's going to be you know on the on the 22nd of you know october that's going to be my natural navigation day i don't Mm -hmm. do that you know i i'm constantly immersing myself in this stuff but i see it as a layer that sits on top of every minute outdoors rather than something that displaces other activities so it's it's yeah i i say to people the way to get into yeah absolutely i i say if you're totally new to the subject you almost don't even need to step outside. Just look out of a window and say, I'm going to try and find one clue that tells me which way I'm looking. And then suddenly that part of your brain, and we were all born to do this. This is what our brain was has evolved to do. It hasn't evolved to sort of, you know, check check yes. social media or all that sort of stuff. It's 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 evolved to actually go, Oh, okay. So that little 
mark in the ground there is telling me more people turned left than right here, which means that's probably the direction of the village I'm trying to find. Uh, and that that's, you know, that that for our ancestors, that's life or death. And therefore, it's it's part of our it's part of all of our DNA, literally. It's it's so fascinating. And it's interesting that you talk about they're saying that you don't have to be necessarily in the woods or, you, you know, you could look out your window or you could be in your office. I remember when I lived in Dublin, when, after I had bought that the Walker's Guides um, book, I was trying to figure out sort of what direction the road faced on the street that I worked on in Dublin. And I realized that at kind of around 6 p.m. when I'd be walking to my bus after work, the sun was like directly pointing down the street. And I realized that it was actually almost pointing directly east-west. And therefore, the one that I worked on was directly north-south. And from that tiny piece of information or from being sort of observant of that, that anywhere I was I was in Dublin at, a, at let's say 6 p.m. in the evening, I could tell like, okay, well, my work is that way and that's, you know, east of the city. So therefore we're heading. And I could just basically figure out which direction I was pointing in the entire city of Dublin based on that one little piece of information. And that was something that I practiced on my lunch break, you know, so I didn't have to be in the woods. And it's just, that for me was a revelation in sort of how you can sort of apply these things to your perception of your world and the way that you see things. And it's, it's extremely rewarding and gratifying when these things start to click together for you. Yeah. And, and that's, that's very close to one of the techniques that I encourage people to, to get stuck into is uh, in, in one of my books called Wild Signs and Star Paths, I refer to this technique uh, and I call it the invisible handrail. And the idea there is once okay. you understand, there's basically lines in every landscape, even in, in total wilderness. Mm. There, there, will, there will be a river, there will be a ridge line, there will be some line that you can kind of make sense of. But in, it's actually easiest to practice this technique in towns and cities because what we do is we get, let's say there's a high street that runs east-west. And we just start, we're just starting mm -hmm. to get used to the idea that the sun is due south in the middle of the day. And what you can do, mm -hmm. which if you've, if you've never done it before in a town you don't know perfectly, is you take yourself south off the, the high street that's running east-west, and you're, you're looking towards the sun, it's the middle of the day, and then you just start exploring slightly randomly, you know, you're wandering down side streets, you're looking at windows, you're having, you know, you, you allow yourself to get a little bit distracted. And then this magical thing happens where if theoretically somebody came up to you and said, do you know where you are? And you'd have to say, got to be honest, no. Do you know how to get back to where you started? Yes. So there's this sort of thing, well, wow, I don't have a map and I couldn't actually point on a map to where I am. But I know if I put the sun on my back and follow my shadow, I'm going to hit the high street. And the only, the only missing piece, which is very, very simple, is just keeping an awareness of whether you need to turn left or right when you hit the high street. And that, that, is how all, that is how all indigenous and ancient cultures found their way. They don't have this kind of, they don't have a part of their brain that we no longer have. What they have is a sensitivity to these lines in the landscape and a sensitivity to the many different ways you can get, get yourself back to it. And, that, and it really is as simple as that. And, and it's the invisible handrail because you can't see the high street, you can't see the river or you can't see um, the, the ridge line. All you need is those two pieces. I know it's out there. I know which I know which way to I need to go to find it, and then you're you're there. I'm. Uh, it's very cool. I'm. I'm happy that you mentioned uh, indigenous people and that they don't necessarily have a part of our brain, or have a part of a brain that we don't have anymore. So that once you start looking into it, once you start reading it, or you read the back of the book, from a 
lack of a better term, modern human perspective, it sounds like there's some sort of magic in this and it's all just, you know, folklore and wives' tales and whatnot and, you know, how do you even start approaching this? But then everything that you're writing about and, and what you're talking about, you found a way to ground it in science. How does that even start? How, how, how does that sort of, uh, how do you start to unravel that thread? It's, it's a good point because on a personal level, I'm a curious creature and I, I'm happy to discuss and love learning about things I don't know about. And I like to think I'm very open-minded. So if, if I met somebody tomorrow who said, I can predict what the weather's going to do in three years' time by tasting soup, I'd, um, I'd, my initial reaction, which hopefully I'd keep to myself, is that sounds unlikely, but I want to know more. But in terms of what I write about and teach, it has to be things that I can explain the, the scientific building blocks behind. So I love the, I love the culture. So... A good example is in the Pacific, they, they have um, the, the indigenous cultures there have these fantastic techniques of working out where land is using clouds and wave patterns and stars. Um, and, it's, and it's all dressed as it is in all parts of the world in this very rich language uh, and, and, and heritage. And when you first immerse yourself in the language and, and stuff, it sounds like they're, they're on a different planet. But actually, once you, once you peel back the layers of the language, you, you find that the, the water's not that different there than it is you know, in the bath. So um, once you know the patterns, you can explain it in terms of the bath, and it makes sense when you look at the, the Pacific or, or any sea or, or lake or pond. So... For in terms of my professional work, I have to, I will not propose a technique that I can't explain in a way that a scientist uh, would would be on board with. So the, it's re, it, it's really a case of um, that my my two pillars are nothing is random and everything is connected. Uh, and here we're talking about the nothing is random. So if if you if you walk out of um, you know you you walk into let's say a park in a town. Uh, and you see there are a pile of leaves at the base of the tree, but they're only on one side, we just say, why? Ah, so the wind has, has pushed the leaves round the tree from the prevailing southwesterly side, and they've gathered in the wind shadow where the wind can't get on the northeast side of the tree. That is science. That is not, you know, that is, we're not, we're not sort of relying on um, deities or praying to do that. That, that is, you know, that's, that's meteorology and microclimates. It's, uh, it, it's all, it's all pretty solid stuff. Yeah. I mean, the, the sort of, and again, it's like those things sound so obvious when you actually put two and two together. And that's the thing that I've noticed. There's sort of a recurring theme in, this sort of thing, but also in sort of bushcraft skills, in sort of general sort of homesteading skills and everything. It's like, when I've heard time and time again, it's like, this isn't rocket science. You know, if it was, then, you know, we would have died a long time ago because there's a lot of silly people out there. But these things are simple tools that if we kind of have been passed down some sort of basic knowledge of these things, then they all sort of fall into place. And I guess that's probably where those wives' tales uh, Jeremy is what you were talking about kind of come into play there where it's like how do we simplify this for a child or you know anybody who can kind of make sense of these of these clues that we're seeing uh, Tristan you you uh, mentioned as well like I was watching a, a video that you did a couple of years ago when you were talking on the TED stage and you were talking about this sort of and again it kind of comes back to this local sort of wives tales thing um, 
Well, you were talking about these grand adventures that you've kind of gone on because, I mean, we haven't even mentioned the fact that you hold these incredible records for, uh, I think you're probably the only human that's both, is it both you sailed and flown across yes, the Atlantic uh, Ocean only living single-handedly? Person and that, which, uh, that's, uh, I, I went cool. to seven, uh, seven <laughs> okay. pilots for advice on how to do the, the North Atlantic flight. And by the, t- by the time I took off, uh, uh-huh. three out of the seven were dead, I think it was. And so that's, that's, a, that's the sign that you're, you're oh getting past the, um, the point of sensible aviation. I Whoa. Think. <laughs> okay well yeah maybe maybe and, and i guess like to use that as a side note to what i'm about to say is probably like bad interviewing skills because i think that is a story in and of itself and i would love to kind of talk to you about that um but one of the things that you said was that you know what you were missing was that sort of the self the exhilaration of being a 10 year old of sorting the natural wonder of exploring and what sprung to mind for me was actually um, a woman named Nan Shepard, who I'm sure you're aware of, who kind of spent her whole life exploring the Cairngorms and didn't really, you know, stray too far from her own environment, but actually had such an intimate and sort of romantic and poetic understanding of her own environment that, you know, it essentially enriched a lot of her career and her writing and stuff. And I think that's a that's kind of a testament to the fact that we can be doing these things very locally in our local woods, walking dog, walking our dog and stuff that we don't have to be using, you know, natural navigation to cross the Atlantic, so to speak. But what can people be doing if they, let's say, apart from maybe going and buying your book, which I also yeah. highly recommend, what can people be doing from day to day just to start enriching their experiences outside? Well, well, something I do, uh, pretty much every day on a, on a very sort of small scale is, is step off the path. Um, now that's easier said than done in, in lots of places. You know, it's sometimes uh, in an urban situation, it's actually easier weirdly because of the, the sort of high street analogy I mentioned, you're, you're stepping off the street there rather than a path sometimes. Mm-hmm. But um, a very, very, very sort right. of simple thing you can do, uh, you can be in the middle of a big city or in the middle of a, a vast wilderness, is whatever, whatever route you were taking just, just try and factor in, and it only needs to be 10 minutes, um, to just step off the path uh, uh, and then say to yourself, what, what clues are there that would lead me back to that path? Now, your brain will instantly reach for la- landmarks. It'll say, well, I passed, you know, and I am talking about initially, if, particularly if you have no experience in this area, you literally don't want to do more than about 20 yards to start with. I mean, you know, you want to be only a distance where you could throw a stone and hit the path when you're starting out. But, because the wonderful thing with natural navigation is the theory is the same if you're walking, you know, 20 seconds as if you're walking 200 kilometers. It's exactly the same. So you, you can get, you know, almost all of the... The, the 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 philosophical and mental satisfaction over tiny distances so you just step and, and you can even you can even do it by taking one step off a path and you just go okay other than joining the dots of landmark so instead of okay well i passed that tree or i i went round uh, that boulder you we start to take the landmarks out of it so we start to imagine a, a simpler landscape and we start to go okay well we've talked about the sun now let's feel the wind Let's have a look at what the clouds are doing. Okay, now let's close our eyes. Okay, there's more birdsong behind me than there is in front of me. Uh, and I remember that I walked towards the birdsong. And, and just simple, a simple exercise like that, you are tapping into, you know, at a guess, 90% of all the techniques that somebody would have used, you know, 10,000 years ago. It's so cool. I mean, it, it just sounds simple, doesn't it, when you say it? Like, 
close your eyes and listen to nature, basically. Yeah, yeah. It's um, uh, the the lovely thing with natural navigation is it it gets us to use a part of our brain which won't kick in in a purely theoretical exercise. So by just taking one or two steps, mm. it, it's it's I, I'm. My wife always teases me. I'm I'm really I, I'm really naughty. Coming back to the food analogy, you know, I'll, I'll read I'll read three cookbook I'll read three <laughs> cookbooks for you know for every three meals I cook. But uh, there is it is very different when you step up and do it, uh, and and it's exactly the same with navigation. That the the second I get excited about a, a technique for any reason, I, I just go out there. I might even just try and do it in the garden if it's possible to do that. It, you know, it's it's not always I can't recreate the desert perfectly but i can you know there are lots of things you can do that and just by doing things there is and i mean this literally that there are parts of the brain that engage that wouldn't otherwise so it's um and it actually feels to me like your brain's getting tickled in the nicest sense because it's it's what we've evolved and we've all had that feeling uh, particularly if there's been bad weather for five days where you you're getting slight sort of cabin fever and you've been spending too much time on screens of various shapes and sizes and and you just get that sort of thing with your body and your mind saying to you i don't feel great uh and then you go and you go and stand outside even if it's in the rain for for five or ten minutes uh and say something like i'm going to try and use a tree to forecast the weather tomorrow you know and you might succeed and you might fail but parts of your brain kick in you know, it's like blowing the dust and the cobwebs out of the parts of your brain that, that have got us this far in the evolutionary sense, that have got us through the last 20,000 years. Uh, that part of our brain goes, ah, now you've finally remembered what I'm here for. And it's a lovely feeling. That is so cool. I mean, I get... it is, yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, a lot of that, I, it kind of what springs to mind, actually, sadly, is um, I don't know if you, if you've seen. It's a very old episode of a, I think it's an old Ray Mears episode where he was essentially teaching indigenous tribes methods that they would have used generations ago, but they had actually lost, even though it was kind of traditionally from them. I believe it was a fire hand drill. I believe it was, um, and Ray Mears was there, and he was actually showing them things that they would have done generations ago, but were actually lost. Do you think there's an element of that in us? In that, yeah, I haven't seen that episode, but it 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 it, it resonates. I've I've had similar but different experiences when I was with the Tuareg in uh, in the Libyan Sahara in 2009, I think it was. Um, I was again comes back to this language thing. Uh, I was trying to communicate in my rather poor French because I, my Arabic was too weak and I didn't know any of their dialect. They didn't have one word of English, but they had a smattering of French from from you know the, mm-hmm. the sort of colonial era, and so the French was breaking down mainly my fault. And but I was trying to pick up their language, so I thought, well, the the place to start here is I'm going to point to a star and say, you know, literally just say, you know, qu'est-ce que c'est, you know, and 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 they would give me a word, and I'd scribble that down on a piece of paper. And then the next thing I did was I, I pointed to a planet. I can't remember which one, but let's say it's Venus. And I was expecting a different word, and I got the same word. And what it transpired quite quickly was that they didn't know the difference between the stars and the planets, which, you know, there are a, a, an awful lot of sort of six- and seven-year-olds who can do that. So um, it, it, was, it was quite a sad moment. At the same time, they were steeped in knowledge and, and traditions that that I had no idea of. So that I, I tend to find that that what quite often happens is you meet people of 
of our generation and and they they say things like my father knew that but i don't uh but they even in that situ even in that situation they'll still know you know but they're quite often they're quite often it, it, it's it's always a treasure hunt in terms of the the knowledge i go there thinking i reckon there's going to be a lump of gold in terms of fantastic bit of indigenous knowledge about this and probably four out of five times there isn't, but somewhere I hadn't thought to look, it pops up. So it's 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 always it's always satisfying um, uh, doing it. But it's it's there are surprises in in both the knowledge and the ignorance. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what springs to mind there for me is, um, and I'm again, I'm sure you're aware of Daniel Kahneman's kind of thinking fast and slow. It's a very kind of famous book on this sort of very sort of entry level psychology around the ability to sort of learn something or do something based on how you've been taught it versus a sort of an intuitional sort of movement. And I think he uses driving a car as a, as a good example, where when you're driving a car, you're not necessarily, once you get used to driving a car, you're not, your brain isn't going, okay, foot down, first gear, okay, accelerator, steer, etc. At the beginning, you're kind of doing those things um, but after a sort of a, a short while, those things start to become intuitive and your body starts to move in these ways and you're sort of using the car as a vehicle without you sort of really thinking about it. How long does it take with intentional practice in these sort of things, this art forms, as you call it, before these things start to feel somewhat intuitive? Because it's it can be overwhelming, the, especially, I mean, I'm using the walker's guide as, as as an example i do have the natural navigator but the walker's guide was actually the book that really introduced me to this world and the the sort of the uh, this sort of yeah ability to be able to do these things and frankly i found it quite overwhelming there's so much to know and it's like how the hell am i ever going to learn this stuff yeah it's, and i'd love to know like at what point does it start to feel intuitive uh well i can give you a really practical example because uh, and it ties in very nicely with your question about daniel kahneman because I was experiencing some slightly odd but nice things in terms of the night sky. Uh, and the, mm -hmm. the example I wrote about um, is, is the constellation Orion, which, um, I mean, we're, we're chatting in September and Orion is just starting to come back into, uh, into the sort of visible night sky because we don't see it in midsummer. And there, there are lots of constellations we can use to find mm -hmm. the North Star, and the North Star is, is due north or within, within one degree of it. Orion rises in the east and sets in the west, uh, but the way it arcs across the southern sky from a northern hemisphere perspective uh, can give you an instant sense of direction once you're practiced. And, and what, what happened for me, and I wasn't sort of trying to make this happen, and I wasn't aware it was going to happen, is that I went through, exactly as you're talking about there with Daniel Kahneman's Fast and Slow, I was doing the slow methodical thinking. I was going, right, well, it takes, you know, fortunately I don't have to sort of think about whether it's Orion. I'm familiar enough with Orion, so that's fairly instant. But then it, then for a, for a little while, I was having to think, okay, well, it's not on the horizon, so we're not looking east or west. It's got to be somewhere across the arc from east to west. And then there's this, this sort of method where Orion has a belt and a sword hanging off the belt, and the sword will point down uh, towards the um, what's called the South Celestial Pole. But without, but this is this is all very slow thinking and slow description. The long and the short of it is these are all visual patterns. And, and I started looking and using this method repeatedly, sort of, you know, several times a night over, over a few weeks, and, and then again over years. And then this interesting thing happened where I started to see direction in the night sky. 
Uh, and it's, it's quite hard to articulate because it's a part of the brain that doesn't deal with language. But it's, it's sort of similar to when you mentioned driving. When we see a red, a red traffic light, we're not thinking, oh, just remind me, what, is the, that, what does that colour mean? It's, <laughs> right. it's, it, that, you know, whereas if we go to a foreign, a foreign country and there's a, an unusual sign with lots of detail on it, we do have to do that slow thinking. It's like sort of saying, is that telling me I am allowed to turn right here or not? I don't understand. Whereas with the, the stars become the traffic lights after time. And, and I wrote a book called Wild Signs and Star Paths, which was based on exactly that idea. Which and and in it, I, I set out fifty-two keys, as I call them, things that if we if we practice, they become uh, intuitive. So stars are are one example, but uh, uh, another another example is if we two different keys. One one um, is is the edge. So once we get used to the idea that you get a lot of animal activity at the edges of things. So if we think of some some woodland that that. Um, there's an edge to the, the forest and then it opens up onto a plain or farmland or whatever it is, the, the greatest concentration of animal activity is going to be where the open land touches the woodland. Um, and the reason's quite sort of simple. You get some animals that, that need trees, some animals that need open spaces, and some that need both. But there's only one place in that landscape that all three animals are going to be happy, and that's where open touches, touches woodland. So, so that's why we get the most animals there. So another key is time of day, and, and I think a lot of people are still, still sort of familiar with this concept, that we get a, a spike in activity at twilight, so at dawn and dusk. If you, put those, if you put those two things together, we start to appreciate that if you look at the edge of, of a, a line in a landscape at dawn, the probability of seeing an animal shoots up. And if we add just one more key, which is that animals don't pass in and out of the, the trees randomly they have their own thoroughfares um there's a, there's an older uh, traditional um english expression i think it is i don't know where it comes from pre-english but it's it's the muzzet which is like the little gap in undergrowth where you know deer deer badgers rabbits and things like that so we then got three keys we bring them together and we, we're slow thinking now we go out there and go right it is dawn that is the edge of the the woodland and there's the the, the gap the muzzet I've put those three things together. I think I should see an animal now. And then, not every time, but quite often, you see a rabbit or a badger or a deer or something pop out. And then you keep practicing those keys. And this is what, you know, you know, hunters, fishers, you know, what, what anyone whose livelihood or, or, or passion or, or sort of deep hobby comes to do, more often than not, without thinking about it, out loud, as it were, they... You, you just you get to this point where you're walking out there and you just sort of go, I'm going to see a deer. Uh, and you, it's, it's like a feeling. And, and somebody might say to you, how do you know? And you've almost forgotten the keys because you practice them so many times. You know, and I, I, I get lovely messages from people who sort of say, I've started sensing this stuff and I'd forgotten that I got right. it from your book. Wow. And I'm like, well, I'm happy. You know, this is, this is what's meant to happen. That's so cool because that's I think... A, yeah, you, that's a good one. I mean, Jeremias and I have had that conversation actually quite a few times. Um, and I mean, it only springs to mind now because Jeremias, you were actually out deer hunting this morning, I believe. Um, moose. Or moose, sorry. Um, moose. Yeah, moose hunting. But what we've kind of spoken about in the past, uh, Jeremias and I, is that the local you know, hunters and stuff, they will know where to look. They will know where to find moose or whatever kind of animals in season, the Capricalia and things like that. But they don't necessarily know why they know that. 
I feel like that, that that's the case with a lot of these tra- traditional yeah. how did the moose hunting go? Uh, nothing we, we uh, no luck today uh, but we're out tomorrow and every weekend until uh, end of November now so it's a it's a full it's it, yeah it's a lot it's a lot of good fun uh but yeah so sorry my my train of thought was uh somewhere else yeah with with just with traditional knowledge wh- whether it's skills as in fire lighting and whatnot or shelter building or natural navigation the ones the seasons outdoors people if you will that have this you know great knowledge that you want to know more of might not be a teacher type of person either but they will be able to tell you like this is how it is this is how i do it but it sort of stops there so what's what's very fascinating or fascinating what's very nice with your books is we were talking about this right before you came into the to the uh, studio is how you've been able to write in such a way that it's engaging and fun a lot of other outdoor books when when they're talking about skills is very very like a to b this is how you make a fire step one step two step three and there's not this rich language of painting pictures so when you're reading your books you're really painting pictures of expectations and what you can see and it is a very cool way of learning because your stuff is what you're teaching is very visual and emotion and feeling based so it's quite cool that you managed to put that into text and word as well thank thanks very much that's that's very kind and you you're mentioning there about knowledge and teaching being different things and i i i really relate to that and i try very hard to um deconstruct things before I write about them Uh, and a a good example that I think everyone can relate to is um, one of my sons learned to drive fairly recently and it's a fascinating experience having had a a driving license for for over 30 years having to suddenly sort of go oh people don't instinctively know how to Mm. change gear you've got to actually you know and that uh, and, and a similar thing when when my boys were younger you know riding the bike is the classic sort of um you know, memory thing where it, it, it's almost a cliche now. And and here's a really practical example. Somebody whose job, you know, I don't know if there are people who work full-time teaching people to ride bikes. I think that's a still mainly <laughs> a, fa- a family activity. But let's say that person exists. Yeah, there's one of the simple deconstructions there, which which I had to relearn because I'd forgotten, is that you've got to be going on a very, very gentle downhill. If you're totally new to, like, you've got no stabilizer on the, on the bike or anything, and it's your, almost your very first time of trying not to fall off it, the smallest gradient will determine success or failure. If there's even mm-hmm. a 1% uphill incline, you're probably going to fall off the bike. But if it's, these, <laughs> the, if it's the opposite and you're going very, very slightly downhill, you might succeed. But if you ask anybody who's been riding a bike for more than 10 years give me one tip of how you learn. They're like, I've no idea. <laughs> so it's, that, yeah, that, yeah, that's true. what, the, these little blocks are there. And my job is to, um, is to, is to find them um, because it's, there are lots and lots of beautifully written books uh, that, that talk about how somebody did something amazing. Uh, and a lot of them are good fun to read, but I don't feel I'm earning my, my paycheck if the person at the end of my books, you know, 
should should feel that they can see what they need to do. Uh, some mm. some of it's very easy. Some of it's some of it's more challenging, uh, and that's as true for me as anyone else. I mean, it is it is quite dense stuff. And I, I, it's one tip that I have, and I guess uh, I don't know if a lot of people here have audio books or they listen to Audible or anything like that. But I do believe uh, Tristan, you've narrated your own books on Audible, at least a few of them. What I found useful is to actually listen to the book in Audible while reading it. So I'm actually listening to you sort of explain it while I'm trying to read it and I can see the illustrations. So you're kind of engaging a couple of extra senses there in terms of trying to get the information in because yeah, it's super dense stuff. And I mean, and that's, there's, there's sort of a beauty in that as well, because no matter how many times I go back and read each chapter, I always pick up something new that I, maybe I would have sort of didn't see before or didn't make sense to me before. Um, but it kind of leads me on to, uh, learning in general and sort of your channels and the way in which that you sort of get your your sort of teaching for want of a better word out there and of course we have you have your books which we've spoken about but you also like are extremely prolific when it comes to I mean for example you have a, a podcast series you have an online learning sort of channel um, and I guess for me and I, which looks fantastic yeah really really beautifully kind of uh, laid out and even on your website there's a lot of free resources which I highly recommend people check out but there's an irony there for me in the sense that um, obviously technology is able to help sort of illustrate what it is that these these sort of lessons and these sort of learnings and yet we're kind of trying to persuade people to move away from their sort of devices and things how do you sort of balance those uh, tensions between getting the ent like entry points are essentially a screen, but the learning is sort of outside off the screen? Yeah, it's it's an interesting area, and I I feel uh, pretty pretty relaxed about it because I see it as a so long as we're making a conscious choice, we can have the best of both worlds. So mm -hmm. I would never have developed I would never right. have developed an online course in in ever probably if it wasn't for COVID, uh, and and all my outdoor teaching was shut down like everybody else uh, and I, I I was frustrated and, and and I thought well let's let's do it and uh, that was an interesting exercise and I've noticed quite a sort of um, sort of with hindsight obvious pattern which is you know so many more people are starting to go for the online course again about now but over kind of from mm. sort of late June through July and August it, it goes a bit quieter and and then uh, in in the in the short days it really really sort of mm -hmm. gets very very busy but it but it the the, mm -hmm. the broader point, which is which is sort of more important than than, than my course, is, is is that there it doesn't need to actually be a battle, providing we're we're, we're deciding what we do with our uh, attention. And and the the way I describe it sometimes is let's say each day we've got um, let's say one thousand units of attention that we can give to whatever we choose. Now it might it it mm -hmm. might be that. Uh, we're working in a job for eight hours uh, and, you know, that that's, let's say, going to use up sort of 50, 60 of our attention units. We've still we've still got quite a few left. Uh, we might, um, you know, uh, choose to uh, go to go to the theatre. You know, that might be another 20 or something. Uh, and how we make our journeys in between all of those things is part of that. So if we're if we're late for a meeting a friend or something like that, um, you know, we might want to get the smartphone out. We don't want to disappoint them. We might, okay, well, I think the smartphone here is going to stop me getting lost. It's going to save me five minutes. On another time, which is what I do a lot, is I try, it's just in my nature to 
you know, it, it drives the rest of the family up the wall. But I just, I just, lo- I like being early because it, it it forces me to wander around places. So, so I quite often, let's say I'm meeting somebody in London or something like that, I will quite often get to within, you know, 50 yards of the door that I need to be at, sometimes three quarters of an hour before I need to be there. And then I'll say to myself, okay, I'm going to try and find my way around this part of London that I don't know, you know, using the clouds. And that's, I'm using up three or four, three or four of my units or whatever it is doing that. Um, and so... It, it, so, so my, the, that's, a, that's a sort of rather long waffly way of saying if it's a conscious choice, we can have the best of both worlds. The only, the only kind of pitfall is if we go through a week or two weeks and then suddenly go, I just fell down a social media rabbit hole. I have no idea what happened to all my free time. I, you know, uh, we all know that feeling when you invest right. sort of time in a, in a film and it goes absolutely nowhere and you kind of go, you get that feeling of, right. well, that, <laughs> there's a few of my units gone. I'm not going to get that one back ever. And, um, <laughs> but, it, but if it's, <laughs> but if it's, if it's, if it's a choice, then, then, uh, yeah, we can have the best of both worlds. I think that's a really good, uh, really good answer. And it's a really good example of, yeah, like it online can be a tool and a very valuable tool at that. If we know where to sort of invest our sort of energy, it's a good way of looking at it because we're in the in the end of the day we're in a we live in a modern time where these tools are uh, accessible so why not find a, a a way in a relations relationship to them that can benefit us uh trissa could you tell us a little bit about the online course actually because i'm actually super interested in joining it myself and i'm sure a lot of people will be interested after listening to this what is the sort of the the parameters of the sort of the skill set do you have to be in a certain part of the world is there like what is the sort of range of, of teachable skills there um could you talk to us a little bit about that yeah yeah thanks it's um it's based in the northern temperate zone so the idea is that you're not uh, I mean, there's a short section on it on extreme environments where I touch on um, being at sea, on ice, and on sand. But mm-hmm. the, the the core really is aimed at northern temperate zones. So the idea is you you have wherever you are in the world, you you have um, probably some some greenery um, and and you you have some trees and things like that. It's not it's not um it's not a desert, but the the structure of the course itself is very very simple. It has twelve chapters. Uh, uh, and in each of them, I take a different aspect, like trees, for example, and and it's super, super visual. I invested quite a lot getting a proper crew together, uh, and we went out into uh, into the South Downs in in the south of England. And uh, because I know this part of the world, it meant I could use the time really, really well. So I, I could say, okay, I know this tree, you know, of the of the mm-hmm. you know million trees I've seen in my life, or whatever the figure is, this is the one that shows you how to use tree roots or or this is i know that this hedge has a fantastic example of these lichens so it's it's like a sort of video you know collection of of the best examples and the word collection there was a mistake because what's evolved is to sign up to the course you basically become a member which gives you access to this whole other section which is called the collection which is my favorite photos and videos of natural navigation clues and signs that i've seen over the last 33 journeys so there's um england france spain oman the us lot you know united arab emirates um italy uh, lots and lots of quite often short intense natural navigation journeys i've done and i tend to pick about depends on the quality that i come across but sort of typically anywhere between sort of five and seven or eight 
examples and I take a photo and then quite often do a video and talk people through them. Uh, and the total now is I think it's 460 photos and 75 videos that you, you get access to. Wow. And uh, yeah, and a, a lot of a lot of people tell me that, um, you know, they, they tend to be incredibly sort of polite and kind. But what they're basically sort of saying is they're not readers. You know, they're visual people. Uh, and, you know, what, what they're really mm -hmm. saying is they probably tried to read my book and it isn't going in, however hard I've tried. Uh, and they and they and they need <laughs> they need something else. And this this is. It, I mean, it is dead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I consider, I consider that I've let a reader down if I haven't put what I sometimes call a nugget, i.e., something that is practical, you know, usable mm -hmm. on every single page. But to do that, as you say, it's uh, you come away after sort of fifteen pages, going, I might have a strong cup of tea now. <laughs> <laughs> it is something that I thought th uh, thought about when you were talking about uh, traffic lights and stoplights, that now. We don't even think when we see a red light, if we're driving in our home country. We don't even think when, when we see these uh, traffic lights and, and signs along the road. And that is, of course, a sign of this time that we have now when we're looking back at natural navigation as something that they did then. But in that, there's, of course, a future. So what do you think that the future will look like in looking back at are we ancient by that time of how we were reading signs along the road? That's a really fascinating question. And if I, if I understand what you mean by the question, I'm, again, there was no great plan to do this. But what I found happening is that I think in certain areas, it is possible to take natural navigation to levels that our ancestors weren't because... Um, uh, uh, and I don't know if, if you both familiar with the the chef Heston Blumenthal. I don't know how well known he is. Uh, no, have you come across? No, he's he's a he's a, a British chef who got um, three Michelin stars because he he was ahead of the curve in one area in particular, which was using science to take culinary skills to a new in a new direction. So. You know, mm -hmm. now in, in smart restaurants, yeah, there are foams and all sorts of aromas and there are these dishes, these sort of glass things. That, I mean, I, I see it on TV more than in anywhere else, but but they, they kind of lift it. And uh, it's amazing how often we're coming back to food. I must be hungry. Um, but uh, but these, <laughs> these, these aromas and things like that. And, and this chef, Heston Blumenthal, was, was um, at, the, at the leading edge of that. So what he was effectively doing is taking something, you know, one of the most ancient human skills, cooking, and, and making it almost sort of um, space age. Uh, and, and weirdly, I'd never quite describe it in those terms, but in natural navigation, there are certain areas where I feel that, that I and others are, are potentially taking it in directions and levels that our ancestors couldn't have done because there's botanical research, for example, there's geological research, there's ast astronomical research, which is allowing us to understand things at a level that our ancestors couldn't. And again, if we kind of mm. practice that observation, uh, I mean, the way certain plants behave has been studied at a level now which uh, our ancestors didn't need to and yeah, wouldn't have wanted course. to. Yeah. So, so I'm now, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of, yeah, that, that sort of features in my writing. So there could be an article that's written, you know, an academic paper that's been published very recently that finds its way into, into a course or a book or something like that, which... You know, you could argue, well, if, if we didn't need it five or 10,000 years ago, we definitely don't need it now. And my point comes back to the one we were discussing earlier, which is this is a cultural activity. You know, you don't 
you don't need the most complex flavors in food and you you don't you can get through a day without understanding what the flap of a butterfly's wing means but it's quite fun and quite satisfying to know what it does mean yeah that's a that's a there's definitely a good future in natural navigation still yeah and i think uh with conversations like this i think uh, hopefully it turns a lot of people onto your work um but tristan is there anything coming down the line before we let you go what's what's planned for the natural navigator over the the course of the and where can people yeah, and find can you? Yeah, people find your work? Oh, thanks. I, I've always, I've always got sort of things simmering away, but we've chatted about so much sort of good stuff that I don't, um, I won't uh, sort of hypothesize about what may happen because it's, it, you know, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I, I've got a load of stuff on naturalnavigator.com, and as soon as, as soon as I'm sort of, you know, because I generally got things going, but mm-hmm. I don't share them until they're, uh, until they're sort of ready. So. Um, uh, like everybody, I, I make lots of lots of mistakes and I learn through sort of stuffing things up and that sort of thing. And that's generally going on all the time. So it's only it's only once I've tried in a, a, a new direction or a new perspective enough times that I can sort of go, yeah, that that works, that has value and might add something to other people. Does it actually find its way into even a conversation like this? Because if, yeah, as you can mm-hmm. probably probably tell by the amount i'm sort of talking if you if you had to listen to all the stuff that doesn't make it into into print or <laughs> on the screen then <laughs> it'd be a it'd be a long day for everyone <laughs> so uh, yeah <laughs> it would be it would it would be so much fun to being a bug on, oh, yeah. on uh, a fly on the wall <laughs> for sure cheers well thanks so much for having me (laughs) no man it's it's been a real pleasure i'm gonna go and dig my books out again and uh, possibly sign up on the online course and yeah hopefully other people do the same so thanks so much for coming on and it's it's uh yeah have a good evening thanks so much guys it's been really fun happy navigating happy navigating